0: From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue? I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the questions CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the live show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 33, What's Up With Revenue. Today we're going to talk about how your reps are in guiding your prospects I'm here as I am every Wednesday at 4 o'clock live on What's Hard with Revenue with my longtime friend and business partner, Eric Kalis, who is jet-setting across the, uh, not even, I can't even say the country today, just jet-setting across the continent to be in Montreal to speak to an uh, uh, entrepreneurial organization. Eric, give everybody a little bit of an update of where you are and then say hi.
1: I'm in Montreal, <clears throat> Uh, doing some speaking engagements at the WPO, Women's President's Organization, literally the highest energy entrepreneur group I've ever been affiliated with.
0: Well, I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that. Everybody, if you're uh, listening to the show, don't forget you can catch it on our YouTube channel. The Square2Marketing channel has every single episode of What's Wrong with Revenue. You can go there, you can like it, you, su- you can subscribe, you can provide comments. We love hearing your comments, we check them on a regular basis. If you're interested in all of Square2's audio and video content, head on over to square2plus at square2marketing.com backslash, backslash square2plus, our free streaming service for all of the Square2 audio and video content. And if you want to provide questions like the ones we're going to answer today, or if you'd like uh, notification and email of the show when it's over... You can also go to the show page, what's wrong with revenue at the bottom of the square to marketing uh, website in the footer. You'll find a link for what's wrong with revenue, head on over there. You can subscribe to the show and you can submit questions right there from that page. So today, as we do every Wednesday, we're going to try to crack the code on what's wrong with revenue. And today we're gonna talk a little bit about sales, sales rep, sales process. And basically to kick this off, I don't know about you, Eric, but I don't know anybody who likes to be sold to, and there are still plenty of salespeople trying to convince us to buy things without really understanding that we all have this defense mechanism that repels salespeople, and these mechanisms are ingrained into our reptilian brain. It's the same kind of fight or flight feeling that you get when you head into a store and you are you are uh, uh, rushed by the salesperson. And the first thing you say is no, 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 I'm just browsing. Please back off, let me look around at my leisure. That feeling you have in your in your body is the fight or flight response to someone who's you know getting in your personal space. And uh, it's, it's very common with all of us, we just don't wanna be sold to yet. So many companies continue to run sales processes and hire sales reps that try to convince people to buy something to pressure them with tactics and to push people to take action. So what we're gonna talk about today in the show is how to get your reps to understand the difference between convincing and guiding, what it means to be a sales guide, what a, sales, what a guided sales process looks like, how to better understand what it means to help prospects feel safe, and to use supporting tools and content to create a remarkable sales experience. So Eric, you are the resident sales guru at Square2, Kick us off with a little uh, insight into what we're going to be going into in more detail today.
1: Well, I was thinking about our episode today, Mike, and I'm having uh, sorry. A part of my uh, speaking gig here in Montreal is they've given us kindly a little booth that we could talk to people that are attending the conference. Uh serendipitously, I brought 100 copies of our second book, Fire Your Sales Team Today, which is always a good conversation starter because of its interesting title. Mike, I can't tell you how many times earlier today I had a debate with uh, some of the entrepreneurs about this specific topic. And It was very timely because I'm thinking about what the topic of today's show is. And I'm introducing them to all of these kinds of concepts that you just laid out to intro the show. I am still blown away how many people are like, well, our salespeople have to hit the phones. It's their job to generate leads. Yep. We've been doing outbound sales calls for blah, blah, blah. And then I simply ask the same question every single time. Do you like to be sold to? And the answer, of course, is no, no, just like you said about that small part of our reptilian brain. So my next question is, if you don't want to be sold to, why do you want to put your prospective clients in that uncomfortable situation? So the first thing is that they just don't know about a different strategy. So we'll talk about that today, about how you can approach those salespeople. Those salespeople, for the most part, that these entrepreneurs are referring to are a uh, long time embedded uh, employees as well. They've been doing it this way for years. And I would think that they would have had some learnings over COVID where people really changed their buying behavior but it doesn't seem uh, to be taking hold. The second thing I'll say in conclusion is I like to be sold to. When my wife and I go to one of those timeshare resorts I'm the first guy to sign up for the 90 minute presentation because I just love to see how they put the hard clamps on people and how they could have such a better close rate if they had a more artful sales process. But for some reason, they keep grinding it out and forcing you to sit there and don't let you leave until the time is up, literally holding you hostage until you say, I'm either in or out. The last time I went, I had a debate with the manager because I was being a bit ornery. I was actually considering buying. It's in our favorite location, which is in Aruba. The deal was really good. I think it was something like $17,000 $17,000 paid for over 10 years. So I said to my wife, Hey, maybe this is something we should go to. Like they literally had me. And I said now to the salesperson, I said, now, look, I think I'm going to be in, but I have a couple clarified questions. Let's just jump right to like making me feel comfortable about this. And he wouldn't budge. He kept doing the same uh, routine. <clears throat> and I kept saying, no, no, I'm a sales and marketing professional. I understand what's going on here. Let's talk about some of the details. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. Can you guide me through this part of the process? And when I got a little upset because he wouldn't change his thing and now he's really wasting my time. And now I'm definitely not buying the manager, who I assume was listening in on the uh, zoom because it was done by zoom because of COVID uh, actually cut in and said, yeah, this is, this is over. You can leave. Now, It's such a shame because these are big purchases, large ticket items. They're a complex sale. How does it work? How does the payment work? It's a relatively long sales cycle, right? I have to think about it. I have to bring my wife. I have to write a check. I have to get approval, I guess, or something like that. Why wouldn't they just apply some of the principles that we always talk about in a really great sales process and double their revenue? I don't understand.
0: Yeah, those are two. First of all, I would really like to dig into a little more detail in terms of what the people you're talking to at the show are saying, because I feel like they would be much more progressive around thinking differently about how their sales teams execute. Uh, Yeah, the, um, the timeshare, you know, they have just been running that playbook for so long. And I guess they get a certain amount of people converting and they're, comfortable with those people, even though I know a lot of them are upset afterwards and want to cancel. And there's a whole industry of getting people out of their timeshare. So obviously, something's not executing correctly in that industry. But uh, tell me a little bit more about these conversations with these progressive entrepreneurs. They're still running the kind of the same hit the phones playbook. I'm, I'm so surprised to hear that.
1: Well, I would say it's an interesting flavor here at WPO. First of all, like I said, super high enthusiasm, really nice, really friendly crowd. But I see that um, there's a lot of second and third generation owners of traditional businesses. In fact, today, I bet you 40 to 50% of the folks I talked to had some kind of manufacturing or distribution business, not even like high tech cutting edge kind of stuff. And there's a lot of legacy that way. Well, my parents started a business in 1965 blah 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 and then that's the way we've always done it but um, i wouldn't say that they were progressive i would say that they're leaning into what they know and feel comfortable with when i said to each and every one of them do you like being sold to 100% across the board everybody said no so when you do the follow up question well why would you want to subject your prospects to that they say something like well it's not really like that we're really not you know selling them i said well, are you giving them a lot of content? Are you giving them a great experience? Are you differentiating yourself from the other folks? Are you um, giving them options in the sales process—early journey, mid journey, late journey—so that they just close naturally? What is your close rate? And the uh, obviously the responses were dismal. So I'm not quite sure why you have a smart bunch of, of of people that have very successful and quite large businesses. Wouldn't at least consider to test something or to uh, have a little tiger team of like two salespeople trying something Mm -hmm. a little different to see if they get better results. I was actually amazed. And, you know, lately when we talk to prospective clients, COVID has made a big impact on their impression of sales and marketing. And it doesn't seem to have reached this uh, group. Now, look, I have a limited group. And like I said, they're super nice and professional. But if I talk to 40 people today, I would say 35 of them were old school.
0: Mm. And they must have had some kind of Shift during COVID because no personal calls, no in person calls, no conferences, no networking for a good 12 to 18 months. So they must have downshifted into something digital. And now you're saying they're really going back to what they did up prior to that.
1: Yeah, a lot of them said, Yeah, we really suffered and we just kind of like waited it out. Right. As opposed to a hard pivot into something that might actually be work not only during COVID, but for the years to follow.
0: Right. Well, that's really interesting data point. So let's talk a little bit about. Look, we wrote a book, right? And the book is uh, spends a lot of time talking about the sales guide. In fact, the title does not suggest you fire your sales team. It actually, if you read the fine print, you're supposed to fire them as their sales rep job and then rehire them as their sales guide job. So, you know, talk a little bit about what it means to be a sales guy.
1: Well, because we don't need to sell. And we just need to help people in a, in a big purchase. And I'm not talking about buying something for 20 bucks on Amazon. You don't need a salesperson to help you with that. But if you have a complex sale, long sales cycle, high ticket average, B2B for the most part, then there's going to be questions and concerns and something like demos that have to happen and showing them uh, the impact, uh, brainstorming about how it's going to be integrated, whatever they're buying, blah, blah, blah. So the salesperson their whole, the former job of the salesperson was to coerce, influence, arm twist, however you wanna call it, to get someone to buy something. But now we have the internet and any of these people that wanna buy some of these products or services can go online and do their research without ever revealing who they are to uh, any of the companies that they're researching. Which means, now I've read different articles about this, but about 80% of the research is done before they even get to the salesperson. So they're kind of in a position to say, yeah, I kind of have a handle on this, but I'm not quite sure, should I go with you? Should I go with the other guys? Should I go with the X5000 or the X4000? I'm not quite sure which model to choose. I'm just making this up, of course. That's where the guide kicks in. The guide has to guide them the last 20% of that process, which results in a closed deal. So what does a guide really represent? A guide is a trusted advisor. A guide is someone who will answer your questions expeditiously. A guide will help you whether you do business or not, explore the options and figure out what's right for you. If you take the posture of a guide, it, like I said, a trusted advisor uh, posture, then it's not adversarial. It's, um, it's collaborative. And that's a whole different posture than what can I do to put you into a Chevy today? <clears throat> the reptilian brain that is meant to flight or fight doesn't kick in because you're like, look at this person. They're really trying hard. You know, a lot of times on our sales calls, I say to the person, listen, whether we do business or not, I'm still going to help you on this journey to help you figure it out because we're not the fit for everybody. And I want to make sure whatever you do, which is a mission critical decision for your business is the right decision for your business. You can literally see the relaxation in the prospect when you say something like that because i'm making it very clear that i'm not trying to sell you something but i am trying to help you figure it out and obviously the between the lines uh, copy is buy from us
0: yeah you mentioned something really interesting which is pre-internet if you wanted any information from any company you had to call the company or i guess send them an email and get in touch with a sales rep. The sales reps controlled all of the information and they controlled the entire process. And they would dole out information as they saw fit in order to convince somebody to say yes, right? In fact, there's a lot of like really old school tactics where like your very first objective in sales is to get them to say yes, say yes to anything, right? If they say yes to something, then they're probably gonna say yes to buying, right? it's funny now to think about it but this is how a lot of people were trained initially when they did control the process to your point now the buyer the prospect is in control of the process you know we have a eight stage buyer journey that we help our clients understand the prospect is in control of 5 no 5
1: 6 because the last two, which is decision and ongoing delivery, right? That's
0: obviously yes, they're well, yes, they're in control of six of the eight steps. So, yep. you know, they really set the pace, they really set the tone. And when we do buyer journey mapping with our clients, there's a very specific conversation around how does the person feel at each of these different stages? And the goal is to Get a, a smiley face, like to get them to be comfortable and satisfied and like happy to some extent as early in the process as possible. Now, when you start, to Eric's point, they're anxious, they're nervous, they don't know who they're talking to, they don't know what the experience is going to be like, they don't know if, if, if it's going to be helpful or not. They might even feel like, well, I might be wasting my time here, but I, I need to talk to someone, so I'm giving it a go. And um, even when they are pre-sales right when they're looking around on their own they're nervous they're anxious their job might be in jeopardy their company might really need them to come through they're concerned about the information they're processing and the the how this information is going to influence their ability to make a good decision so they look good or su- continue to be successful in their role don't get fired i mean there's so many things associated with making a purchase when you are talking about a large complex sale that's you know big ticket items. Nobody wants to make a mistake with that. So uh, interestingly enough, the the people that tend to do well with this guide concept are the professional services firms, the consultants that we work with, because lots of times we'll say to them, well, how do you work with your clients? And they're very good at explaining the consult consultative approach they take with clients. Well, we like to educate them and we like to give them all the information. Then we make recommendations and we kind of try to direct them which recommendation we think is best for them. And, you know, we give them supplemental information so that they can have everything they need to make a good decision. And lots of times we're like, well, it's really the same process. And I think it's easier for consultants in the professional services space to kind of get what we're going for here then it might be someone who's selling products or even software or things that, that might feel less consultative than the professional services deliverable. Wouldn't you agree with that?
1: I would 100% agree with that.
0: The other metaphor that I just love around the sales guide thing is the sherpa that gets you to the top of Mount Everest. Because in a lot of cases, if you've decided to climb Mount Everest, it's an aspirational objective for you. Like it's something you've probably never done before. And it's something that you're really serious about and you want to be successful at it. I don't think too many people want to say, well, I got to base camp and turned around. I mean, if you're doing it, you want to be able to say, yeah, I got to the top. It was the experience of my life. Those are the people that typically take on a challenge like that. And, you know, you've never done it before you need help. And it's the same thing with a lot of the sales execution that we're talking about today. If someone's never bought software or never bought a huge piece of machinery or never hired a, a large consulting company to help their business with big transformational, yeah, transformational things, then it's really the same feeling. And the, the Sherpa that gets you to the top of the mountain well, what's the first thing they're doing? Well, they're looking at all your equipment. They're like, "Yeah, don't take that." And no, you have the wrong boots, and put these on. And no, when we get to the top, you're going to need this jacket. And yeah, your oxygen is all configured and you know not properly. And look, having never done anything like this, I'm making it up, but you get the idea. They're 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 going to equip you appropriately. Then they're going to look at the route and the weather, and they're going to say, "Yeah, we can't go this way because it's too early in the season." And and, you know, when they get in the middle of the mountain, they're like, really, no, no, don't step there. Like, that's going to collapse. We got to go this way. And they're really guiding you every single step of the way with different advice and guidance along the way based on where you are in your process. You know, I watch some of these kind of like like The Alpinist, which is a show on Netflix about someone that, that free climbs. And, Eric, I got to ask you because no one's really answered this question for me. And I even Googled it and Google was a little weak. How do these people who climb these mountains, how do they get down? Do they literally just turn around and go back down the mountain the same way they got up?
1: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I mean, there's limited trails. Especially, you know, I watch that whole thing on Everest, right? They, they have the trail. And that's when like all those uh, tourists that are clogging it up, that's yeah. when people are dying because the trails yeah. are crowded. There's only one way out. You know, Mike, there's one other thing that I think you should really uh, emphasize on your Sherpa example, which is trust. You have to trust the Sherpa so much so that it's a life and death, right? Buying a new piece of equipment for your factory is not life and death, but trusting the Sherpa is, and that's such an extreme example, such a, a picture that we can pay for people that you have to trust the salesperson. If you don't trust the salesperson or the sales guide, as we've been talking about today, I think you got to find a new company because this mistrust this worried that someone's going to take advantage of them or pad the order or whatever it is. It, it, it we have to be done with that. If you want to be collegial, if you want to be collaborative, if you want to work together to a common goal, that seems to be more in the 2022 sales guide definition.
0: It's such a good point, and we talked uh, I mean we kind of like glossed over, but it's really worth digging into a little bit this idea of making someone feel safe. So yes, there's a part of our brain that controls how we feel, and it's it's almost you know it, it is reptilian it is. Like out of our control of it, like you either feel one way or you don't. It's not like you can choose to look one way or you can choose to touch something or choose to taste something. It's it's a very involuntary process. The the um the the feeling you get when you're when you don't feel safe, and when we work with clients, we tend to break that down because for, in some cases it's hard to know whether someone feels safe or not. So we use the concept of no like and trust, and this is to your point, like trust is one of the three elements that gets people to feel safe. They also have to like you and they also have to know you. And knowing you is lots of times delivered without the salesperson, right? Because they can go to your website and they can get to know your company, how long you've been in business, who you work with, the kinds of products and services you have, maybe some other clients like them that you've worked with. Maybe they can watch some videos uh, from other clients that have had a good experience. So they kind of get to know you a little bit um, without the sales rep. But like and trust is all about the sales rep that works with them. They have to like you. They have to like the other people that come on the call. Like if you're bringing other people into the sales process, they have to like them as much as they like the sales rep who's controlling the process. And only when you get no like and trust do you get safety. So those are really important elements to think about uh, when you're looking at the sales process you're executing. And that's a wonderful bridge to the next point I want to talk about, which is the guided sales process. So, again, Eric, I'm going to ask you to talk to the audience a little bit about what does a guided sales process look like? What are some of the steps that might not be in a traditional sales process? What are some important things for people to think about if they want to go to more of a guided sales process? Give us a little uh, primer on that.
1: Sure. So, you know, we have been working for literally years and years on helping people think about their sales process in more of this collaborative way. Our, the process that we use at Square2 has a funny name, the five Ds, right? And the five Ds are discovery, diagnostic, design, delivery, and delight. And the reason I want to go through those is because we built those specifically to one, collaborate and come up with a co-created solution. And two, to your point, build trust. Discovery, uh, a lot of people jump right into the proposal meeting, right? And they're like, okay, I, you know, I spent just a few minutes understanding what you do. Take the gold package, the silver package, or the bronze package, and we're done. Unfortunately, that doesn't make people feel safe, especially the package part, because they want something that's specifically designed for them. If I go to the doctor and I have a problem, he doesn't say, Eric, here are three drugs. Just pick the one you want, <laughs> right? Right? He says, well, based upon my experience and analysis and lab results and listening to your chest, I think that this is going to be the best cure for you to get uh, uh, healthy as quickly as possible. And when you hear that, you're like, okay, well, that makes sense. I trust that process. Same thing happens in the five Ds. In discovery, it really is uh, a half an hour to 45 minutes of just finding out what's going on. Is this even a fit for either company? And that first step is important because if it's not a fit, which a lot of people, a lot of salespeople just like to spray proposals all over the place. It's not smart for anyone. It's a waste of time for the customer. And it's certainly a waste of time for the salesperson. And it's okay at the end of that discovery process to say, I don't think we're a good fit. Let me refer you to someone who is. Once again, maybe you'll get them the next time. Maybe you'll get a referral from someone they know that is a good fit, but you're doing the right thing. Secondarily, once they qualify in, and by the way, it's square two, only two out of 10 actually qualify in because we want to really lean into the prospective clients that we want to do business with, put in a lot of work and time to make sure we can talk to them, figure out their needs, uh, match up a perfect proposal, and then talk them through it. So out of the two out of 10 that qualify in, we go to diagnostic. Now I bring in the team. Well, now they feel more comfortable because they get to meet the people that are actually going to be working on their account. They get a whole other set of questions that are a lot more tactical, that aren't so high level and strategic. Them, at the end of that, there's another go, no-go scenario. Maybe we made a mistake and they're really not a fit. OK, well, let's refer them then. But if we are, now we're, we're cooking Now, we have a little extra step in there that's called discussion before the recommendations. You know, we come up with the plan that we co-created with the prospect, but nine times out of ten, it's just not perfect. Something was missed. Something needs to be added. And just having a quick conversation. Like, hey, guys, this is what we're thinking. What are you guys thinking? Is this right? Is this accurate? You want to add something? Should we detract it? Should we break it into phases? And that extra step feels also very comfortable to the prospect because they're not even up to the pitch yet. They're still working on what the proposal. So that's three meetings that have to do with what is the appropriate course of action in this uh, in this uh, engagement. Now we have a traditional uh, pitch meeting. We call it the recommendations meeting. We now show them in granular detail everything that they were recommending. But it's not so surprising because we've already been talking to them about all these things. So there's no like sticker shock or the big reveal. It's like, yeah, this is what we talked about. This makes sense. I see how it all fits together. Oh, here's the price. You had already estimated something. Obviously we try to come in at the lower range than we originally estimated. And now it's a very, uh, once again, collegial conversation. At the end of that, the decision process becomes quite easy because if the other marketing firms or professional services, technology, software, whatever your your company is, uh, uh, a listener, well, by this time they get here, think about how weak your competitor's sales process was and how you stand out as the obvious choice to do business with. So now we have an 85 or so percent close rate at the end because we've really done our work to show this prospective client that we care about them, that we're listening. We ask a lot of questions. We might loop back. Hey, we didn't cover this one point. Can you just give me a little answer on this question so I can finish my job of helping you? When the deal closes, they are excited. It's not like, oh, I begrudgingly chose from the three horrible options I had. This was like, well, this company really stood out as the best. And that's exciting for the company. We made the right choice. Now, that trust has to be continued. It has to be uh, evident in the handoff to the client services team or the manufacturing team, whatever your business is. And they have to give an equal to or better experience at that point to keep that excitement going, generate referrals, more business, cross-sells, upsells, however you want. But that's why a lot of people, as I just described, you know what I, what I just described is a lot of work a lot of time a lot of meetings a lot of coordination and a lot of people don't want to do that effort which is why they have a 20 percent close rate and to your point mike they just keep spraying proposals and work on the numbers i'd rather do less work with more results than more work with less results
0: yeah there's so much buried in that description which was really good you know like your um co-creation phase is specifically designed to get them to feel safe because when you spring it on them in the recommendations meeting no one feels good about that right and they're actually coming into that meeting thinking to themselves Wow, i wonder how much this is going to be i wonder if we're going to be able to do this are we wasting our time like is this even the right company even if you've done a good job up until then they're still concerned about what the final is going to look like but we've already covered that we've already shown it to them worked with them on it you know, when they see it, they're like, yeah, that's what we talked about. Yep. You asked me if I was okay with that. I said, yes. You know, like even if they change their mind, which is fine and happens sometimes, you took the extra effort to make sure that they were comfortable with the way we configured the program for them. So um, it's
1: no secret that they're going to spend money with a firm. Why not just get it out on the table on the first meeting? Hey, Mike, based on what you shared in the discovery call, sounds to me like you need a project that's going to be about $10,000 a month. If they had $2,000 a month in mind right there, they can opt out. No problem. And nobody is uh, any uh, uh, damage in that process. But if you're like, well, we'll see what the price is going to be. You know, we're not quite sure. Now there's question marks flying all over the place.
0: Right. And and there's a lot of sales consultants who, who like to guide uh, or, or, or advise sales organizations. Like this isn't really, this is common, right? You want to get to know quickly, right? You don't, you want to get to know early in the sales. And I say N-O, not K-N-O-W. You, you want to get your answer if it's going to be no. You want that in the first meeting. You don't want to spend your valuable time working with a prospect to go all the way to the end for them to be like, nope, this is too expensive. Thanks, we picked someone cheaper. Like, it's better well, to I ask to be those questions than. early and and find out whether they're going to be a good prospect as soon as possible, even if the answer is no, right?
1: The uh one of the uh, uh, attendees at the conference I'm at today said, oh, thank God you're here. I need a new website. Can we talk about that? I'm like, yeah, tell me what your situation is. She said, X, Y, and Z. I said, sounds like a twenty-five dollars to $30,000 website. She was like, what? <laughs> I wouldn't pay more than $5,000 for a website. I'm like, great. I have someone to refer you to. Good luck. I think that's a good fit for you. It's not a fit for my company, but let me refer you. I referred her to our good friend, Drew Donaldson over at Crackle Marketing. He'll do a beautiful $5,000 website. Will it have strategy? No. Will it perform? No. Will it be search engine optimized? No. Will it have killer messaging? No. Will it have conversion forms and nurture and all that? No. But that specific client will feel really good about spending $5,000 on a website and it's a perfect fit for Crackle and that client.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, Also, along the way, uh, thinking about how we get people to feel safe, how we really guide them, there's a lot more use of tools and content in terms of how to create a remarkable sales experience, right? We didn't, we kind of been alluding to it, but you can really differentiate your company by having a remarkable sales experience like the one we're talking about. If if one company is executing kind of a traditional sales process and another company is doing what we're talking about, who do you think people are more likely to do business with? Probably the second company. So before we get into questions, maybe you could talk a little bit about what kind of tools someone might be thinking about if they want to build a guided sales process what kind of content might they be needing to weave into that sales process so that it really does stand out from their competition
1: yeah so this is a lot excuse me a lot about buyer's journey right standing in the shoes of your prospective client at each stage of those uh, five d's and asking yourself what do they need to feel safe here what questions do they need answered, what could hold up the deal at this stage and give them everything they need. So a good example, and I think we talked about this during our advocacy show a couple of weeks ago, is the reference reel. We stitched together about 10 clients, all talking about how great square two is. And right after the diagnostic meeting, we send them, great, we're going to work on your set of recommendations in the next day or so. By the way, while we're working on that, here's a bunch of clients just like you. Not because we want to send them a fancy video, because we determine at that point, they're like, well, I'm thinking about hiring Square 2. Maybe I should check some of the uh, other clients they've talked to. Oh, wait a minute. They just sent me a video of those clients. Oh, I see. These guys are pretty happy. I'll be happy, too. That's preempting any problems by giving them a piece of content. Now, early in the journey, you have a lot of uh, challenges, because whatever you're selling might, might be a bit complex. Today, I was talking to an entrepreneur, and their business was manufacturing automation. So I said, it's so complex. How do you explain to them all the different options they have to automate a manufacturing line or facility? She goes, well, that's up to the salesperson to explain it to them. But meanwhile, if they know, how's this going to work with my company, I would put together a collection of content that would be like the beginner's guide to automating your factory. Uh, three mistakes to avoid when uh, automating your factory. I would do uh, small, medium, and large. Which, uh, how aggressive should I be about automating my factory? And somewhere in there are the answers that that person's looking for. Now, one could be in the form of an ebook, one could be a video, and one could be an infographic so that I'm also mixing up my content to give them a more interesting experience. Remember, creating those three pieces of content is a pain in the butt. So those competitors aren't aren't going to do that but i'm kind of guiding them through and answering their questions so it has to do with the buyer's journey identifying all the steps asking yourself what they need or what they want in each one of those steps creating the content giving to them uh making sure it's programmatic and systematized so that everybody uh gets exactly the same experience which you know will result in an 85 percent close rate and yeah that's a lot of work mike but you know what i want to win all the deals
0: yeah there's a uh an interesting element to that too With her answer, right? So if she has 10 sales reps and she's leaving it up to the sales rep to explain that very complicated question, I can promise you that her prospects are getting 10 different experiences. Each of those sales reps is probably doing it a little bit different, answering that question in a different way, maybe even telling a different story about how the company, you know. Decided to be in this business or delivers their mark, their manufacturing automation. It's just not a consistent process. So there's really going to be no way to decide whether their process is effective or not. It's going to come down to which rep is telling the story in the exact right way. You want to make sure that every rep is saying the same thing to each prospect at the same time, using the same email, using the same tools. Obviously, personalizing it based on the conversation that they're having, but. There's an element of content and context that's relevant to every sales process that we run into. Typically at this stage, prospects ask about this issue. So we're, we know that we're prepared. We have an infographic, we have an ebook, we have a white paper, we have a webinar that they can attend. We have a series of videos that we can share with them. This makes that question answered by every sales rep in the same exact way at the same point in the process Designed to make the prospect feel safe, designed to make them want to continue the process, designed to position the sales up as a guide. uh, And that is basically how you uh, facilitate sales execution in 2022. You can't leave it up to the reps anymore or just be prepared to have 10 different experiences being delivered. Some might be good. Some might be okay, Some might suck. You know, you can't have that anymore if you're trying to uh, really lean into creating a, a sales process that executes on a regular at a high rate in a regular way.
1: I agree completely.
0: All right. You want to do some questions? Love the questions. Okay. Uh, I got a question here from Melissa in New Jersey. In your experience, how hard is it to transform a sales team from traditional sales to guided sales? Well, what would you say to her in her situation?
1: Uh, basically, one of the hardest things ever.
0: Okay, well, can you be a little more specific? What should Melissa think about?
1: <laughs> well, Melissa, I feel bad that you're challenged with this transition, right? And many companies, Mike and I have literally lived through many of these digital transformations or sales guide transformations. And the reason I say it's difficult is because you're interacting with a lot of humans. Um, salespeople get a pretty nice compensation to make it rain. And when you get nice compensation and the company depends on you to make it rain, you tend to be a bit uh, um, of a renegade, meaning this is the way I'm doing it. And if you don't want it, you can find someone else to do this job. And I'm not saying all salespeople are like that, but that's typically what we find. When management comes and says, hey, guys, we want to change this up a little bit. There's always reticence. There's always a buy-in problem. And that's why uh, I'm... I'm, I'm uh, 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 mourning for your situation simply because it's really hard to change uh, p- behavior. Now, Mike and I have seen many companies that have wholesale got rid of you know 80% of their salespeople and did a hard pivot during COVID. That was a big thing that happened, right? Salespeople lost their job because they couldn't be banging on doors and beating the bushes. But what we've seen and guided people on a lot is a company that tries a pilot program. And the pilot program is, let's say, two or three of your most open-minded salespeople to try a new thing, to give a new CRM a little bit of a test drive, to try to use some of the new materials in the sales uh, uh, process. And what happens is, when that smaller uh, pilot program is successful, they start to outperform the more traditional salespeople, and either those salespeople come on board with the new strategy, or they get left behind and leave but it's hard because you know, when you're even switching out something like a CRM, oh, we've used Zoho for five years. Now you want us to use HubSpot? To most people, it'd be like, yeah, you're just using a new software that is better. Give it a try. Take the effort of getting to learn it a little bit, and you'll have a brand new tool that'll help you. But there's so many people that push back. I remember we had a CRM implementation a while back, and the owner so frustrated, he asked me to come to the sales meeting and talk to their 25 salespeople. And I got to tell you, I did my darndest to explain to them how life would be better on the other side of this transition, and it completely failed. Now, leadership has to be strong. The reason we're doing this, folks, is because we want to be better. We want to have better results. We want to close more deals and go home at five o'clock. The leadership in this specific situation was a bit wimpy and let the sales team drive the uh, uh, conversation as opposed to them telling them, hey, this is what we're doing from a strategic basis. And this is why we hope you guys will come along for the ride. So there was a whole bunch of uh, problems in that specific scenario, but mostly because leadership didn't take the leading role.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Melissa. If you, you need the CEO on board or at least most of the C-suite on board to support any kind of effort to transform your sales process. And I think this is also probably why, you know, Eric kicked off the show with his experiences of the entrepreneurs he's talking to in Montreal who haven't changed is because generally, I think uh, business owners and CEOs look at sales as kind of like the lifeblood of the business. And if things are going okay and people are closing deals, which they obviously are, because these are successful companies, I don't know that everyone really has a stomach to overturn the apple cart and start all over again and and upset the sales reps and teach them a new process and train them on new software. It almost seems easier to just let them do what they've been doing and hope they do it a little bit better each year. Or maybe we get rid of some of the underperforming sales reps and we put some better sales reps in there. And that makes us a little better this year versus last year. But. If you really want to grow, if you really want your company to see some hockey stick growth and you're executing an old school sales process, then you need to get everybody on board. You need to kind of think the project through, as Eric outlined, a pilot will definitely check a lot of boxes in terms of getting the sales team to stand up at the meeting and be like, yeah, I ran this new process and it's awesome. And I hit my target three months in a row. And prior to that, I missed it three months in a row. That's how you get the rest of the salespeople's attention, and then they should be coming up to you and saying, "Like, look, I want to try this. I want, I want to use this technology. I want to use this process." Um, it's, it's a. There's a lot different. It's a lot different for the marketing folks to be telling salespeople what to do. It's even a lot different for sales leadership to be telling the sales folks what to do. I've seen a ton of salespeople laugh at sales leaders when they have their ideas yeah, whatever you say, boss, I'm gonna just keep doing what I'm doing because I've been successful at it. Um, You gotta really get this project aligned in a lot of different areas to, to execute real significant transformation. It's doable, and it might even be good to bring someone in from the outside to help tell some other stories about what other companies have done. But some of this stuff that we're talking specifically around leadership and around the pilot and around getting sales itself to kind of tell your story, is how you're gonna do it. All right, I got a question from Joe in New York City. I love the idea of a guided sales process. Are there any specific stages or steps that are absolutely needed during the process to make it feel guided? So you talked about some of the steps, like which one of those really contribute to this guided feeling?
1: Diagnostic, without without a question, right? To get together and not try to sell, but to diagnose what the issue is and then start to put some solutions to that issue. I mean, even though it's an hour of talking about the problems in your business, prospective clients really appreciate it because we're asking questions that are pointed. We're asking questions that go deep. We're not pulling any punches. We're trying to be completely no fluff. Like, look, you don't have but 1,000 people a month coming to your website. How are you expecting to get 50 sales opportunities above? This is a problem you have. Now, the solution to more traffic to your website is X, Y, and Z. We feel that Y is probably the best course of action. We'll go off and we'll work on the details about what Y might look like for your specific company. That diagnostic is important because people like it. Like. You go to a cocktail party, Mike, and someone comes up to you and they only talk about themselves. You you can't stand that person, right? But then someone comes up and says, oh, hey, Mike, you know, my friend Charlie said you were going to be here. Like, I heard that you do X, Y, and Z. Can you tell me more about that? You love that person. And that's why the sales guide asking lots and lots of deep and uh, important questions during the diagnostic really wins the uh, trust of the prospective client because they see. I mean, I can't tell you how many times uh, prospective clients have said to the Square Two team. You guys ask more questions and spend more time than anybody on this project.
0: Yeah, and, and again, to your point earlier, a lot of people we're competing with are rushing to the proposal, right? They're kind of skipping past this get-to-know-you stage. And look, it, I, it when, when, when Eric and I talk to prospects, we already know what the answer is most of the time because we've done this so many times. We need to ask the questions. We need to go a little slower. We need to make them feel comfortable and make them feel like we're really digging into understanding what what they're currently dealing with. And we certainly are, but salespeople, I think in general feel like they already know the answer to the question. They can put the proposal together. Why bother with these other meetings? Let me get a proposal in front of them. Let me get this signed. Let me get this closed and let me move on to my next deal. And I think this is a case where going slow to go faster is a, a real big part of what we're trying to do here. I also can't emphasize enough, you know, when Eric's talking about this cocktail party analogy, it's really true. People love talking about themselves and their business and their issues and what they've done and what they've thought about. And the more you can get people to talk about themselves, the safer they feel and the more comfortable they are with you. So we absolutely want to know the answers to their questions, but also some of that exercise is designed to get them uh, to open up about what's going on in their business and feel feel comfortable.
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, it's like, You're right. I know in the first five minutes, but I often say something like this. Hey, I see you're a little bit concerned about which way to go. Don't worry about elongating the getting to know you process. We want to take as much time as possible to work with you because this is a mission critical decision for your business. You know, you hire the wrong X firm, accounting firm, law firm, marketing firm, and you have a year engagement with them and it doesn't work out. That's a year of lost time and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, lost money. Why would you want to rush that decision? Why would a salesperson want to rush that decision, you know?
0: Yeah, and also there's a little bit of an analogy to hiring. Like there's a saying when you're trying to hire somebody, look, we all make uh, snap judgments on whether we think we like somebody or not by, you know, first what they look like and maybe what that initial interaction is. Like we're all pretty like naturally inclined to like jumping to a conclusion about somebody. And you're supposed to spend the rest of your time interviewing us. If you like them, you're supposed to spend the rest of the time trying to figure out why you shouldn't like them. And if you don't like them, you're supposed to spend the rest of the time trying to figure out why you should like them. And there's a lot of the same thing going on here. And interestingly enough, you know, uh, the prospect call we were on today that you had to hop off on, at the very, 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 very last question I asked them, I uncovered a significant issue that we need to know to put together recommendations for them. And if we had simply said, yeah, you know, you guys sound like a lot of the other, uh, you know, uh, um, technical services firms that we've worked with. I know exactly what you need. I'm gonna get a proposal together. We would have missed that important part of what they need from us to be successful. So, you you know, even if you think you know what the answer is, you gotta ask them the questions. You gotta listen to what they're saying. And I'm gonna tell you right now, inevitably you're going to hear something that you that that is a little different than maybe what you thought when you first started talking to them so it's a really i agree completely the diagnostic step is certainly one of the most important in this guided sales process yeah i agree okay um a couple more here uh this is a going from patty in toronto how does marketing participate in this type of sales process i want them to be aligned with sales And part of this change. So what would you tell Patty that marketing can do to be part of a move to a guided sales process?
1: Well, I mean, without going into too much of, uh, you know, fire your sales team today, marketing shouldn't even be an afterthought. It should be involved in the conversation because what do salespeople want? They want qualified sales opportunities that they can sift through and go after the ones that are going to close and make a lot of money. That's as obvious as it is, right? And if you're not bringing marketing into the conversation to support the salespeople, once again, the salespeople are like feeling independent, lonely, whatever you want to call it. My my company doesn't care. But marketing has got to have a seat at the table in this conversation as well. I love when I talk to progressive clients and they have meetings like this. Hey, marketing wants to know from you sales. What do you need to close more deals? What collateral material, what email templates, what um, examples can we give you, case studies, whatever that we can help you show what our company does? So, marketing has got to be involved. Now, if you're doing a digital transformation to a sales guide, now you have a different kind of sales process. Marketing might actually own the technology like the CRM. So, they have to be involved in this conversation. In fact, we should, you know, it's 2022. Can we just put to bed the siloed marketing and siloed sales conversation. Get everybody together. We're one team. We're working on revenue. You folks over there generate leads. You folks on the other side of the room close the leads and we'll all work together.
0: Well, we can try, but it's Hatfields and McCoys. I mean, some, some in some organizations, they're just not, not going to work together.
1: Yeah, but that's a culture thing. Culture can be changed, even though sometimes it's like turning the Titanic. And it also comes from a leadership perspective, right? Hey, at this company, sales and marketing work hand in glove. If you can't deal with that, Charlie, Mary, or Tom, get the heck out of here.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple other things I could add, Patty. So if you gave uh, marketing and sales some common objectives, that's going to help, right? So if if marketing is getting measured on uh, closed leads or revenue generated, they're going to want to be part of the process. They're going to want to ask those questions that Eric mentioned. Hey, how can we help close more deals? You know, I got a a revenue bogey here that I got to hit. You know, I want to make sure you have everything you need to close these deals and close them quickly um, and close them at a higher clip. So that's one way you can get marketing to participate. I think the other is to um, push these two teams together physically. Marketing and sales literally need to sit together in the same area and not like marketing on one side of the room and sales on the other side of the room, but interchange, uh, uh, you know, together, right? When marketing is listening to salespeople talk on the phone or on Zoom or however they're interacting, um, when sales is listening to marketing have conversations about things that they might be working on, there's a ton of opportunity for someone to be like, yeah, that's kind of right. But you know, when I talk to a, a prospect, like this is the nuance of the concern they have. So you're close, but just tweak that a little bit and you'll get a much better response from that piece that you're going to be sending out. Marketing also needs to know how these tools are performing. You know, already talked about this reference rail. If sales is using the reference rail and no one's clicking on it, it's not working. Marketing needs to know directly from sales. Like, hey, we don't know why we keep sending this reference rail out and no one clicks on it. Okay, well, let me take a look at the email you're using that, that has the it as a link. Like maybe that's not strong enough. Or wait a minute, where are you sending this email? Like maybe you're sending it too early. They're not ready for references yet. Or maybe you're sending it too late. They already made their decision. so They don't need to check references. Let's take a look at that. So there's so many things that these two teams can work on together um, that, that a guided sales process actually provides the, the platform or sets the table for, for these, two, these two departments to work very closely together. If you're gonna move to a guided sales process, I think one of the other things that has to come along with it is, look, sales and marketing is gonna be working together. Like there's no more separation of church and state here. Sales are gonna need marketing, Marketing is gonna need sales, this process is very dependent on marketing to provide the right tools at the right time. Um, this, is, this process is very dependent on sales to provide marketing feedback. This is what we're going to be doing. You know, to Eric's point around leadership, you got to do it, right? I think, in fact, I'll tell you, if you have a separate sales and marketing team and no desire, or impetus, or, or, or um, push to push them together, I don't know if I'd even go through the process of trying to build a guided sales process because I'm not sure you're going to see the real benefit that you would if if these two groups weren't working together i agree mike okay um this is a good question because it talks about metrics so wh- this is from Paige in los angeles what metrics do you use to measure whether this is working or not and over what time period so i'm specifically interested in the time period question because this isn't the kind of thing that you turn on monday and tuesday you see results so Give us a little bit of your insight into, like, what should we be measuring and how long is it really going to take for us to see some improvement in those metrics?
1: Yeah. So the first thing is, is that we need a couple of months. I mean, I've never seen an organization pivot on a dime and be able to do this. So let's just say a couple of months and what's happening in those first couple of months. We're talking about the personas or the description of the people you want to attack. We're looking at the buyer's journey, specifically the tail end when they get to sales. We're looking at how we used to do it and what those metrics were. We snap a baseline of where they are today. So for example, a non-guided sales process might end up with a 30 or 40% close rate, which is fine. But if you move 30% close rate to 60% close rate, you've doubled the revenue in your business without spending any money on advertising, right? So you got to look at, well, where do we want to be? So you have the baseline of the metrics, and then you have where we want to be. And the work that has to be done is the delta between the two. So I would look at things like, are we qualifying? Can
0: you hear me? Your internet got really bad. I'm gonna gonna give him a second to see if he can recover and then I'll answer your question. All right, let me help out here. Okay, so metrics, right? There are a couple of metrics you're gonna wanna look at in terms of uh, whether this is working or not. Um, First of all, um, close rate, right? And Eric started to talk about it a little bit. Your close rate should improve. And you don't have to see dramatic improvements in close rate in order to uh, know know that this is working. Um, the other thing is how long does it take to close the deal? So sales cycle in days, that should also start to short. Um, and again, it probably won't take too long to notice that it's, deals are closing faster. Also, there are stages in the sales process and there are um, timings associated with each stage. So you're probably gonna look at some condensing in early stages first, and then the, the stages that are a little deeper in the sales process are gonna come next. So you might notice that you're getting from discovery to diagnostic faster than you're used to, number one, and then you might start seeing that the, the, the rationalization stage or the stage at the end is closing faster later on down the process. So yeah, you, you died, so I'm handling it. So like you can, you can pick it up uh, when I'm done. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think over what time period, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good question. And I want to answer it like this. When, Eric, when, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think this is your story. When Cortez landed in Florida, right, in the New World, he burned all his boats. And he burned his boats because he did not want his crew thinking like, oh, this is going to be so hard. If this doesn't work out, back on the boat, back to Spain. I think you gotta look at it like this, Paige. You can't really look at this over a time period. You gotta put all your chips in and you gotta like ride this out for the foreseeable future. Like, yes, there are metrics that you can keep an eye on to see that it's working, but I wouldn't look at this. And if someone's saying to you, if this doesn't work in six months, we're going back to the old way. I I wouldn't even, I, I probably wouldn't even tackle this project. If someone is saying you got six months to make this work. You have to say to them, this is how we're going to sell going forward, no matter what. It might take us a year to smooth out the edges and make this really work like we envision it working. You're going to see improvement sooner than that, but you really got to go all in. And if leadership is not all, all in, I think you got to have to have a whole other set of the conversation. So you know, I would expect to see some improvement uh, a couple of months after all the reps are into this new process and you have the right tools and you're starting to... Everyone's trained and they're getting comfortable using the new process. And I would think a couple of months, you're gonna start to see some improvement like close rate, shorter sales cycle, tightening of the the steps between the process. But don't look at this as like, you know this is something we're gonna do and in six months we're gonna be done. Eric and I and the clients that we work with, they are constantly optimizing their sales process. This is not something you're ever finished with. This is something that you're always looking to make better always looking to tweak, always looking to polish like a a rough edge here or there. You're going to make changes to it. You're going to be like, oh, that was a mistake. Like, you know, our close rate actually went down. Like, fine, go back to what you used to do and apply another change that you think might work. Like you have to constantly be iterating and optimizing this to really make sure it works and make sure you're using a lot of prospect feedback and rep feedback to drive these changes you're going to be making. So I think if you take that approach to it, it's going to be, a much better, um, you'll have a much better perspective on what kind of time period and how you're thinking about these changes.
1: That quote was accurate, Mike, from my favorite movie, Hunt for Red October.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. All right. So in the last minute or two, I got a question from Amanda in New York City. She wants to know if we can share a story about a client who made this transition and what improvements they realized. Do you have anybody off the top of your head you could talk about?
1: Yep, got a client that's an interior design and architecture firm. They had literally willy-nilly sales process all over the place. We organized them into a nice sales process. They went from about a 20% close rate on both qualified and unqualified opportunities to about a 60% close rate just by following a simple process. And I don't mean all highfalutin like we've been talking about today, just a simple multi-step process that matched up with their CRM and considered the prospect first, not the company.
0: Yeah, really good. And with that, we can wrap it up. Uh, appreciate everybody joining us. Uh, next week, episode 34, it's a big one for us. We're gonna talk about, you're not designing your campaigns properly. So we see this constantly. Even the most experienced marketing managers, for some reason, are a little challenged in designing their campaigns. You know, They think an email is a campaign and it would be one element of a campaign, but we're gonna talk about much more omni-channel campaigns and how to really get good results from executing a campaign. Join us next Wednesday, four o'clock Eastern time for that. And we'll cover that, um, or i will cover that out for you. Don't forget, check out the uh, episode on YouTube at Square2Marketing channel. Like it, subscribe to it, leave us comments. Head on over to square2marketing.com backslash square2plus, P-L-U-S to get all of our audio and video content. You can submit questions like the ones we dealt with today on our website at the bottom in the footer, What's Wrong With Revenue? Click it and you can submit a question and we will handle it here. And if you're into podcasts like a lot of you are, check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms. Like us, subscribe to us, leave us comments. Thanks so much for helping us. Thanks for joining us, for talking about What's Wrong With Revenue. Hopefully you have a much better idea of how to handle your sales process today. And we really appreciate all the support. Eric, thanks a lot. Good luck in Montreal. Good luck with your test on Friday. Hopefully get back in the country safely and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.